0: Stay with me. This will be a weird intro, but uh, I'm I'm pretty sure it makes sense. It doesn't really sound confident, but I'm pretty sure it does make sense. Yo, welcome to my summer lair. I am your host, Sammy. I am a poet and I know it, you nan. My guest is Alicia Cook, a poet, writer, wearer of mismatched socks, and her latest book is Sorry I Haven't texted You Back. Okay. That's all normal. That's how you're supposed to do a basic introduction. Now, the weird part. There's a Doctor Who episode from 2006, The Girl in the Fireplace, written by Stephen Moffat. Yo, dude is tight. I don't want to explain the whole thing. It's wonderful sci-fi, and it doesn't really apply to my conversation with Alicia, except for this one pivotal part. There's a conversation between Madame de Pompadour and the Doctor's companion in 18th century Paris. I know. Stay with me. Renette, Madame de Pompadour says, The monsters and the doctor. It seems you cannot have one without the other. Rose, the doctor's companion, chuckles. Tell me about it. The thing is, you weren't supposed to have either. Those creatures are messing with history. None of this was ever supposed to happen to you. Renette replies, Supposed to happen? What does that mean? It happened, child, and I would not have it any other way. Here's the punchline. Here's what I'm getting at. She concludes, One may tolerate a world of demons for the sake of an angel. I gotta repeat this because it's such a dope line. One may tolerate a world of demons for the sake of an angel. What you're about to hear is my conversation with Alicia Cook and we do talk about a world of demons. They can be emotional, spiritual, or even physical. Sometimes all three. So yes, we do truly tolerate a world of demons. But as the end of that line says, for the sake of an angel. And one of those angels is Alicia. She has chosen to care, to establish a language for the hurt so that they can communicate and express and share their suffering. Most of us do not know cars, so when we take ours to the mechanic, we have a difficult time explaining what the issue is. It's making this brr 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 sound. Imagine we were able to speak mechanic, or speak doctor, and how much easier it would be for all of us to connect. We would feel less alienated, and perhaps break the silence on our suffering. You know how lonely it is to be in Paris when you don't speak or read French? Uh, Yeah, this is a weird introduction, and I've chosen to believe it all makes sense. (laughs) Just remember that astonishing Doctor Who line is bang on. One may tolerate a world of demons for the sake of an angel. So welcome Alicia Cook, to my summer lair.
1: I trust that you know what you're doing. <laughs>
0: oh, okay, if, if that's how it's going to start, then uh, I don't know. That's, how, <laughs> that's a lot of faith. All right, uh, whenever you're ready, Alicia.
1: Okay, I'm going to read track one from Sorry I Haven't Texted You Back. I tell you I feel tired, and you say, but you slept for 12 hours, and I knew you didn't get it. I tell you maybe I need vitamin D, and you crack a joke about your dick, and I knew you didn't get it. You tell me I have nothing to be sad about, and when I agree and you meet me with a shrug, I knew you didn't get it. I tell you the noise and the crowd are getting to me, and you say, I told you that you didn't have to come, and I knew you didn't get it. I tell you my temples feel heavy, and you say, take Advil, and I knew you didn't get it. You suggest maybe another shower or makeup or a run will lift my spirit. And I knew you didn't get it. I tell you and I tell you and tell you and you never get it. Don't worry.
0: It's not your fault. I get it. Woo! That was fantastic. Thanks. Yeah, I will uh, do my best to get it uh, as we kind of get into these questions and talk about your book. As you said, (laughs) uh, sorry, I haven't texted you back. Is the new book. Uh, thank you so much for taking some time and like for hanging out.
1: Oh, of course, thanks for inviting me.
0: We'll get into some of the the themes of uh, uh, your poem there, but I I got to start with the obvious. Uh, and since I cannot see you, do your socks match today? What's the sock situation?
1: <laughs> no, I have a teal sock on and a white and purple sock that is inside out. Oh, <laughs>
0: you 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 also do inside out as well?
1: Yeah, I don't fix them if they're inside out. It's, it's a waste of
0: time. Okay. You're like the the Mother Teresa of, like, socks. Like, whether they're <laughs> imperfect or they're, like, damaged or they've been through things, they've seen some things, you collect them and you, you give them a good home, you give them some good loving.
1: Yeah, as long as they keep my feet warm, they serve its purpose.
0: Okay. Speaking of purpose, you read track one, uh, but I want to ask you about track 60. 16.1.6.
1: One, one six.
0: No, six zero track sixty. Six zero. You write Oh hang on a second, let me get to the right page. Track sixty. You write, I've always been more prose than poetry. More open-ended than happy ending. Um actually well you also write, I don't think socks have to match. And <laughs> that it's silly <laughs> I, And that silly I that's silly. So, and- yeah, and so That's that so many spend so much of their limited time on earth folding them together or searching for their matches, like socks could have a soulmate. I appreciate puns, but I I want to talk about the the first part there because you said I've always been more prose than poetry, more open ended than happy ending. So, socket to me, is this a manifesto?
1: I think so. I think that this is the most autobiographical I've ever been not just in this poem, but in the in- entire collection. I think if you care to get to know authors more, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you walk away knowing me well.
0: Yeah, that's a good, yeah, it's a good way to put it. It's like um, reading the whole book, it's like, a, it's like a good first date where you meet somebody mm-hmm. and they tell you stories and you have some laughs and they even tell you a couple of like dark things or some maybe secrets or something, something that you wouldn't normally expect on a kind of first date. But it's like, Yo, I that, like that. I like that analogy. <laughs> right? It's like you walk away and you're like, yo, that was a pleasant human being. I enjoyed her company. That was my takeaway reading the book.
1: Oh, thanks so much. That's, that's high praise. I appreciate that.
0: So I got to ask though, like, how are you comfortable sharing so much? Uh, like, <laughs> do you consider openness to be like a habit or something you practice, the way people brush their teeth or work out on a regular basis? So
1: it seems that I'm comfortable with sharing because I do share a lot. But in reality, I mean, human beings are very complicated and layered. Um, there is a lot I don't share. The, the public probably only knows really about like 20%, if that, of my actual real life. So I, I do keep something sacred and private into myself. But I, I think that sharing is medicinal, it, it helps you connect with people. I share something, and multiple people that read my work share back either something similar or they then they think that they can share like it's a safe space. It creates dialogue and healing that way. Mm -hmm. And so even when I'm uncomfortable, I know that there's benefits to me using my platform or my voice to help people understand that they're not the only ones feeling a certain way. So even when it's uncomfortable, I know that usually when it's uncomfortable, I know even more that I should share it. Like the more uncomfortable I am, the more I think, well, other people need to
0: see this. Yeah, because I can ask you and we can both make jokes about your socks and that's just kind of silly and that's kind of fun and it's necessarily a little bit of biography about you too but then to ask you Mm -hmm. about, I don't know, like relationships or being a woman or some of the other themes that kind of echo throughout your work, then it gets a lot harder to kind of like, to kind of connect on those things, right? It's a lot easier to talk about your work, the work in general, than to talk about the work, if you know what I mean, like, The work that of who you're becoming.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That makes sense, and it always depends. Like, I like to meet people where they're at. I always tell people you could ask me whatever you want, whether I answer or not. That's up to me. Mm -hmm. But no matter who or uh, who you identify as, what gender you are, I think you could walk away with a general understanding of like, wow, I connected to this work, even though you know, a street woman wrote this work, I've connected to it, because I really just, I think I boil down, like, being human to, to, well, it's just so universal, I
0: think. I mean, a lot of the the themes kind of, like, I've already touched upon them, like, some of them are, like, uh, friendship, love, uh, becoming a woman, those kind of things those are like experiences that everyone's kind of going through. I'm not necessarily experiencing my own type of womanhood, but generally like a lot of people are going through those. And I think that what you're talking about too is the, is the buzzword, which we don't talk about enough, which is authenticity, right? Authenticity Mm. feels like it's comforting and it feels like home. It's like when you give somebody a compliment and they accept it at face value. I do look good today. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I think, I think um, in this world being authentic and transparent, has become like very rare. So I think when people read something by me or any other author and they recognize themselves in it and they feel that it's authentic, honest work, I think, yeah, I definitely think that they connect to it more so. And, and that I think causes people to connect to me more as, as a person, not just the author of the words, you know, they, they tend to believe they could trust me, which they can, but they usually take, that takeaway is because I'm writing so honestly about my own life.
0: Yeah, and that makes sense because this is the third title with the word "I" in it, right? Stuff I've been feeling lately. I hope my voice doesn't mm-hmm. skip. And the new one is "Sorry, I haven't texted you back." Partly, I guess you're using the the "I" in the the book titles as a kind of invitation. Like you're putting your hand out first, and you're like, "Look, I'll tell you a couple of secrets. I'll tell you a couple of stories behind some of the scars I have, and then hopefully you feel comfortable enough to share some of your own stories."
1: Absolutely. That was really beautifully put. I, I, I'm I glad that you noticed that. I do put that out there as the invitation, as the understanding that I'm writing from my own experience and you might be able to see yourself in it um, because most of what we go through is very universal. And I do basically every two years or so hand over essentially my diary mm-hmm. and say this is what I've gone through. I, and I think that this collection more than the others Is about becoming and overcoming.
0: And what is it that you are becoming and what is it that you are overcoming?
1: I think that I'm becoming more more of my true self, which is everyone's hope, right? When you're journeying through life, you hope that you keep growing and becoming more your authentic self. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I'm becoming that. This global pandemic has has forced me to sit still for quite some time more than I've ever sat still in my life, uh, sat still in my life. And, um, I think that I'm becoming more aware of what matters to me, what should matter to me. My priorities are in order. I'm, you know, I, I found a level of calm I've never found before. And, um, it's empowering me to really just put it out there because as, as put together as I could seem, I do still go through, um, you know, pain and hurt. And I and I think that there's always lessons to be learned in them. I'm overcoming what everyone is universally overcoming is, you know, the anxiety of the unknown, mental health being impacted during not only this time, but, you know, how I I know you're aware that I talk about having drug addiction in my family mm-hmm. and the implications of that. So I'm constantly, I think we're always overcoming. I don't think, something I write in this new collection is, we are in repair. We're never beyond repair. Mm-hmm. Like, we're always, we're never finished. We're always healing, learning, growing.
0: Is it is it songwriting or poetry? I forgot what the actual term is. But it's the idea that, like, songs or poems are never really finished. They're just kind of abandoned.
1: Yeah, I was actually talking to a creative friend with, earlier today about that. And he said... He's a photographer, and he said, my work is only done when someone takes it away from me, like when the deadline happens. Because if if we didn't have an end goal or somewhere else we had to pass it off to, Mm -hmm. I'd be writing the same book forever. Like already, the book's only two months old, and there's stuff that I already was like, ah, I wish I could change that. Mm -hmm. Because that's just how artists are. Like So that's a perfect quote. Like It's either on to the next phase or completely abandoned. It's never done.
0: And that's the same thing for humans, right, and mm-hmm. even related to your your work and your activism with addiction, it's like you don't just suddenly like get up on Tuesday and then you like quit drugs and then you just kind of go on your way on Wednesday and Thursday, like you're an addict for the rest of your life, even though you're not participating in the drugs, right? Like you are always dealing with those things and kind of uh, revising that issue and acknowledging that issue. Yes, right? yeah,
1: recovery isn't possible unless they work on themselves every single day,
0: mm-hmm. But we like these neat things, especially, like, I guess just because we come out of a culture of movies where, like, recovery like like chemo or something. like You know what I mean? Like, you do a couple of months of chemo, yeah. the doctor says, oh, you have no more cancer. I'm like, great. And you high five everybody, and then you go on your way. Everything is good. But it doesn't work that way.
1: Right. And then there's even those scary moments in other illnesses when five years later, after you're fine for five years, it comes back. That's why, like, I've just always lived my life thinking, like, be grateful for today. Tomorrow, anything could happen tomorrow. And um, I've been called altruistic throughout my life, and I think it's only just because I'm so aware of how fragile everything around me is.
0: The word that we're circling in terms of the topics that we just talked about now—are we talking about hope?
1: I'm always talking about hope. <laughs> <laughs> we're either we either need hope, pray for hope, have hope, lose hope. There's always that's always a driving force behind mostly everything, when we're just like existing in this world, I think, Um, you have to have hope. Without hope, you have nothing.
0: I guess this is a weird or slightly corny question, so I apologize up front. But then how are you defining (laughs) hope?
1: Personally speaking, I define hope as the belief that it has to get better. Even your best day, something else in your future has to be better than the best day you remember. But usually when you're in your darkest moments, you have to truly believe that it will get better. Because if you don't and you decide to make a home in the darkness, that's when really scary things start happening. So my definition of hope is that the idea of like, we need to keep going because it will get better.
0: You're talking like a horror movie, for example. If you can just wait till like sun up, everything will be better. Like the vampires and everything else will go away and it'll be a new day. Uh, You just got to hang on. basically.
1: Right. I mean, and and I know it's easier said than done. Believe me. Mm -hmm. I know that you know th- there wouldn't be all this depression and drug addiction and suicide if life was easy to survive um one of my favorite shows actually speaking about vampires is buffy the vampire slayer oh,
0: okay, and something
1: yeah. she says in the end of the fifth season when she sacrifices her life to save the world she tells her sister the hardest thing about the wor- uh, something about like I haven't seen it in years but like the hardest thing in this world is to live in it Yeah. But you have to keep living.
0: So then, okay, sports fans, right? They always have next season, right? The team might make a Mm -hmm. trade. They might hire a new coach. They get a really cool draft pick. There's something to indicate momentum and hope for the next season. So you're not a sports team. You're just a poet with mismatched socks making your way through New Jersey. So what are some of your i know i probably should do a better bio for you but but so what are some of your metrics for hope then how do you know things are getting better or or there's momentum um like most
1: artists i pay attention to the details the small things that a lot of people sometimes take for granted or skate over like the fact that right now i could hang up the phone with you and call my mother because my mom is still alive and well gives me hope that like We're still going to have some holidays together and and normal days together. And Hmm. I have my mom. So like little things like that keep me going. Yesterday, I didn't have the best uh, work day. But when I got to the coffee shop, they gave me a large instead of a medium. I found joy and hope in that. Like, wow, this is good. I'm going to keep going. Today was a beautiful day weather-wise. You know, I could keep going. But I don't look for massive signs. You know, there's no colossal sign that has ever come down to me (laughs) and said, Alicia, keep going and this is why you know like there's no like echoey voice it's always these little moments where I find like okay this life life is hard but it's worth it
0: yeah it's like the equivalent of like when you hold a baby and they smile at you it's like the kid can grow up and do a million different things and you hope that they they do a million things and they're cool and have a good life whatever but for that one 30 second moment when they're just kind of smiling and they got no teeth and no hair everything is good
1: Right, and it's like that innocence is there, and you just want to protect it. But you and you see the hope in like the future and, and just one little moment. So I look for those little fleeting moments to re instill my hope if if it tends to be, you know, losing its steam.
0: How are you balancing hope, which looks ahead, with nostalgia, which looks back? Because a lot of your writing is past tense as well. Yeah. So
1: again, it's it's a pretty kismet almost that that we're talking about this because I just was meeting with my friend earlier like I said and we talked about this too (laughs) I look behind me a lot not in regret not in what ifs but I just like I think a a main theme is nostalgia in all my work because I want to remember it I want to I want to remember the feelings and the moments and because life is so fleeting um it feels like millions of years ago when I was living in a house with my parents and my siblings and my dogs, like it, it, that dynamic obviously has changed because we've grown up and moved apart. Um, so I love that question because hope is looking ahead. You're absolutely right. But also looking back, I'm, it reinforces. So I look back even at a terrible moment in my life, traumatic, and I say, wow, I made it through that. If I've made it through that, I can make it through what I'm going through right now because by comparison the past was worse and I made it through that. And in that thinking hope hope appears because I I I have proof that I've lived through something hard already. I think the problem with right now with the pandemic, especially in the United States, we we like to look ahead, hope planning things and looking forward to something kind of got ripped from us. And all of a sudden we were basically living the same day over and over and over again with no light at the end of the tunnel. And I think that that's why so many people mentally broke under these circumstances, because hope did disappear for a little bit if you didn't know exactly, you know, the little spaces to look for it.
0: Yeah, because we were living a life of cycles right so you you knew when the school year started you knew when summer vacation started (laughs) like uh you know when the season started like you knew it was fall winter so you put away the t-shirts and you pull out the sweaters we lived a life of cycles and then the pandemic happened and then everything kind of ground to a halt and nobody knew yep uh which way to go and we're so used to gps's and direction that we haven't been lost for so long and so now all of a sudden we got lost. So true. And we're like, yeah, so true. I, I don't know what to do. Like we got lost in a GPS world, which is weird.
1: Yeah. And we got lost in like, like our own four walls of our homes that we're supposed to like know. Yeah. Is another thing. Like we were stuck home and so many people realized, you know, so many people had to sit with themselves for the first time. And God knows how long, like, and not be distracted and really like be in your own head and with yourself. Mm-hmm. And it was scary for many people, you know, on different levels, you know, let alone not knowing, you know, some people woke up, stuck at home and realized that they didn't even know who they were married to or they're just getting to know their kids for the first time. So it's, it's overwhelming.
0: Yeah, it is a lot of emotions. I, uh, I don't know how to deal with that. So I'm, to, I'm going to circle back to you and to your emotions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, so when you look back at some of your earlier work or some of your previous journals... Or even if a fan talks to you about your older work, do you recognize the person or the woman or the lover or the friend you were back then? I was thinking like, because in Kevin Hart's latest comedy special, Zero Fucks, he said he likes talking about his kids in his comedy specials because they grow up for him, right? Like he's gone from making jokes about toddlers to making jokes about teenagers. So he's got like a Mm -hmm. public record of his kids and I'm sure as his kids get older and now they're obviously teenagers so they can go back and then kind of hear stories about who they were and try to see who they were through his eyes. So when you look back at your stuff, like do you recognize the person or the woman or the friend or the lover that you were in those in that time, in that window?
1: Yes, I do. And it's definitely like the Kevin Hart reference. It it does serve as a record. Um, So when I wrote stuff, I've been feeling lately, my first poetry book, I wrote that out of, I mean, I was at my worst, deepest, darkest, depression, worst, like creating my own hope to use that word in that book to like, just believe it could get better. And I know I've spoken a lot about that in the last five years, so I won't waste too much time, but, um, it doesn't mean I like what I'm reading. Like I, I, there's one particular poem and stuff I've been feeling lately where I talk about not remembering things and you know, and at the time I did not realize that like memory loss was a side effect of trauma. Like I didn't know that. Now I know that. So I'm reading, I'm reading it through that lens of knowing like, Oh no, young Alicia, (laughs) (laughs) you, you were really hurt and your memory is fucked up because of that.
0: Is is it, we're trying to block it out?
1: Right. Yeah. Like, like I'll write about saying like, someone will show me a photo. So in the poem, a person in the poem is showing me a photo and I don't recognize that moment. Like I don't remember being there essentially. And it was because I was going through such a traumatic span of time that I was basically just like disassociating and going with the flow and not remembering like certain dinners or certain moments um, to no fault of my own. Mm -hmm. So I don't like when I go back and read, About how broken I was, even though it's the truth, um, because it it makes me sad that I spent so much of that time of my life just completely disconnected from myself.
0: You're Leonard Cohen. What's the line Hmm. that he has? It's the the cracks. Uh, I like the cracks because that's where the light gets through. I butchered the line completely. Um, I know what you mean though, <laughs> yes, but because you you were broken, uh you end up becoming a lot more stronger, like you're a strong lady, aren't you?
1: I consider myself um resilient,
0: <laughs> okay, so there you go, that's a better term, yeah, but that's the thing like I think, yeah, I think there's a temptation to always like you said block it out it's the it's a thing we do where we kind of like we glamorize like childhood. And you kind of gloss over a lot of things that were awful in it. Oh, and it's the same thing in relationships. When a relationship comes right. to an end, you, you just kind of focus on the good stuff and maybe a couple inside jokes, um, maybe a few fun moments like that. Like, you're not even together. So there was clearly a couple of reasons why you guys broke up. But you gloss over all of that and you just kind of focus on the positive.
1: Right. And, and we do that because we romanticize things, right, as a species. Humans romanticize everything. You know, if if it was a wonderful relationship, why'd you cry so much? Like, that's a lot of times, like, I would hear my girlfriends tell me that. Like, Alicia, if you were so happy with him, why were you sick to your stomach all the time? Um, So I think in keeping a record, no matter what art form you do, I think that you should always treasure it because it is capturing who you are in that one moment in time. And hopefully you look back and you're like, wow, I grew so much since then.
0: I think part of it too sometimes is embarrassment like you just use the example of like you know your friend saying to you like if it was such a great relationship why was your stomach always hurting and stuff like that i think sometimes mm. there's like red flags that we see and we sometimes tend to ignore them and then when when they actually come true or you finally start to see them you're like almost embarrassed we're like oh, that was pretty obvious. right you now, feel
1: dumb you yeah. feel dumb you're like why didn't how did i miss that why was i why did i waste all that time Hmm. but for me you know uh, Anything I've gone through, I've written about—happy, sad, or indifferent. So I always feel like it's not for nothing. Like I'm always spreading a, a message of something, of connecting to people. So I've tried to make, you know, lemonade out of lemons with all my good or bad decisions.
0: <laughs> and speaking of your decisions, uh, Track 89 has a line that I want to ask you about. It says, "It's been two years since I've stepped into the arcade." When you did go to arcades or play video games, what was your jam? What did you what was your go to game?
1: <laughs> I in that particular arcade that I refer to, um, Crazy Taxi. Oh my- I'm so good at Crazy Taxi.
0: Oh, yo, I'll take you on. That game's so fun. It's so hyper.
1: I know. I know. And I used to I used to babysit the arcade I'm referring to, I, I used to bring the kids I babysat for ten years, the same kids. And I brought them to that arcade literally every day. You know, growing up, met different boyfriends at that arcade. That arcade's like entwined. My brother got his first job as a kid at that arcade. Um, but yeah, Crazy Taxi was my go-to arcade game.
0: Oh, wow. All right. Okay. We, we're we going to wrap this up soon so we can go play some Crazy Taxi. And like hang on, <laughs> I want to I take you on. Um, but I don't want to give people just the impression, like I know we've been kind of talking about some heavy topics, aside from the socks and the Crazy Taxi. Right, but like, you you don't just also just write like static poetry, like lines on a page. Uh, you think in terms of experience. Mm-hmm. Your book is a great example. You have Instagram is very visual, very engaged. Um, and it's an experience to go on your Instagram. So, as an Insta poet, is that the correct term? How do you yeah How do you go about di- approaching your displaying your work? Are you are you working with a designer? Like, do you go through cycles and themes and ideas, or like? What's the approach to making an experience on like Instagram with poetry?
1: Well, it's all me. I make everything. Um, I do go through cycles of like themes. So right before leading up to my book coming out, I was into like, taking pictures of my words with flowers or, you know, autumn leaves. I went through that vibe for a while for a long time. I was very like white background. I would bold a line. I would want people's eyes to catch. But it really just right now. I'm just doing the colored borders because I've just been so busy, and I still want to create content, but I just don't have time to like elevate it too much. Mm-hmm. But um, I do. It's you know everything has its season, and I go through vibes. Um, as long as I'm not doing what everyone else is doing, I feel like I'm I'm happy with that.
0: In terms of doing what nobody else is doing, that brings us to a setup. In sorry, I haven't texted you back, which is side B. Can you explain what side B in the book is? Because this is wild and fascinating. It was a real surprise.
1: Okay, yeah. So uh, the book itself is a complete concept of a cassette mixtape. You know, we used to make mixtapes for people. So like a tape, tapes have two sides, side A and side B. So the book has two sides. Side A in my book is all is the 92 poems. Side B in my book are those same 92 poems but with some words scribbled out to basically lift a new poem from those old words. And it's called blackout poetry mm-hmm. and it's a, it's a visual thing. So it's very hard usually to talk about because it's, it's more visual than anything, I think.
0: Yeah. But it's interesting because it's like the words that you choose to quote unquote emphasize or to flesh out, are they're not always necessarily the words that I was picking up as the reader. You know what I mean? So it, makes, it kind of reintroduces the poem to you. You know what I mean? It's like when you go to a party and somebody says, hey, we've met before, and you're looking at the person, I'm like, sure, I don't remember you at all.
1: <laughs> I like that analogy too. Um, so what's cool about blackout poetry is exactly what you said. I could give 50 people in the room track 89, and all 50 people will black out something different and create a new poem, and it'll all be different. And that's what I love about blackout poetry, depending on what catches your eye first creates like the experience
0: when you're writing this book you said that there are certain things that you will you won't share um you obviously are writing a journal too so is there is there an approach i guess in vulnerability to when you're sitting down to write a poem or work on a poem versus like writing a journal Do you have less armor i guess is the better question
1: usually my poems come from journal entries or like or a fleeting idea so those are usually the two ways Um, Like on my Instagram right now, you might notice that every so often I've been posting something with an April date. Mm -hmm. Those are straight up journal entries. Um, But I do approach, I I want to be open and I want, I want to be cohesive. um, And, you know, the same basically um, throughout, you know, throughout every platform I might be on. So I do approach writing the same way, whether I'm writing just for myself or for the public just write from an honest place.
0: Do you get surprised by some of the emotions or the thing you didn't realize you were feeling?
1: Um, no, because, well, yes and no. So mostly no, because I write in real time, whether I post in real time or not. So I know what I'm feeling like as I'm going through it. But lately, it's funny that you asked that because lately I've been thinking back like years back and pulling from that. And I am surprising myself in like what one, what I can remember And two, like, how some things I'm thinking about still are, like, hurting or upsetting me or making me smile to this day.
0: Is it intimidating, then, like, hanging out with you in terms of, like, you know, if a boy approaches you to ask you out? Because you you put so much of these experiences in your own work, so (laughs) (laughs) there's always a danger that, like a joke between us might end up there or a day, a disastrous date might end up becoming a poem or something like that. Do you find that people are intimidated to hang out with you or are they just as open as you are?
1: (laughs) Well, most of my friends I've had for like 15, 20 years at this point. So, um, and I've always been a writer and I've always like, they've always kind of understood that like it's fodder, you know, but if they are intimidated, of you know people i've met throughout my life if they realize that i'm a professional writer and this happens like if they are intimidated they don't necessarily tell me uh but my family my friends my relationship they all just understand that they could be reading something and and know that it's about them or you know or know what i'm talking about
0: yeah that's kind of interesting
1: <laughs> yeah i think about that sometimes like you know i'm going to throw something i'm trying to think but Like, my family is the biggest thing. like, And I hope my voice doesn't skip. I focus a lot, a lot for some reason, looking back now, Mm -hmm. on my family, my parents and my siblings. And uh, I'm like, wow, they read that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mentioned the Kevin Hart thing, but it's just sometimes, too, like like Dave Chappelle was talking about when he was a younger comic, his grandmother... Uh, would sometimes show up to his shows. <laughs> he would have to like warn her up front. He's like, "Grandma, I'm gonna say some things," and it wasn't even the language necessarily. It was some of the stories or some of the things he was doing that he was more embarrassed about, you know. And he's like, "You know, I gotta give you a heads up. Like, uh, I don't actually necessarily do these things. They're just jokes or that kind of thing." It it's gotta be weird to like, you know, if you want, if you choose to be open and want to share about your experiences and stuff, that's fine, but it's, like, it's a weird contract for... And I'm not criticizing, but I'm just saying, like, from their experiences, I could see it, too. Like, it's a weird thing to, like, have their their moments. Like, when I asked you just now about the arcade, you were telling me about how your brother got this job at the arcade and this arcade was really special to you. It's, like, even something as simple as that is, like, immortalized.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, I, I mean, I don't take it as criticism. It's the truth. I mean, when you have someone that's literally documenting their life for their career, it has to enter their mind. But I think that, um, I don't think I've ever crossed boundaries. Mm -hmm. I mean, one ex-boyfriend might think I have, but like, I'm trying (laughs) to think of that. Um, Anne Lamott has this quote that says you own everything that happened to you. Tell your stories if people wanted you to write warmly about them, they should have behaved better.
0: Oh, that's great! Yeah, she's amazing.
1: Yeah, and like you know, she sometimes gets controversial herself, but like that—that that one quote sums up how I look at it. Because I, you know, I, I'm sure I'm not the hero in everyone else's story, you know, in other people's stories. So I think it all balances out. But I, I do enjoy talking about this because I don't think anyone's ever really asked me this in an interview because it's very evident that I'm writing about people in my real life. Um, and I don't think anyone's ever been like, so what do they think about it? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So sometimes though I do have to tell my parents that like I do write from life, but sometimes, you know, I I use poetic license and I exaggerate or I change like maybe it didn't happen in the winter. Maybe it happened in the summer, but I want to talk about snow. So I'm going to move when it happened and, Sometimes I do exaggerate things for, you know, the poetic impact of it. Mm -hmm. And I do tell my parents that because I don't want them to worry about me all the time either.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing. Like when a stand-up comic is making a joke about a talking baby, like you obviously know for the sake of the joke that the baby's not talking. But the story's funny and the joke is funny. You're like, all right, I, I can accept that. You know what I mean?
1: Right. And there's something in you, right. That knows that even though the baby, you know, the baby's not talking, there's something in you that, you know, wow, this is pulled from somewhere in real life though. Like it started as a real life moment.
0: Yeah. And this goes again to what we were saying before about authenticity, right? So when you're writing about like relationships, either with boys or with your family, uh, or experiences with your family, it's like, there is an element of truth in there. And obviously, like Mm -hmm. you said, you're extrapolating this because you know, you're writing for an audience. So, uh, Like, we can just take an obvious example of, like, when you break up with somebody, it's horrible and it sucks and everything else. If you write about it personally, that can become universal because everyone's gone through something similar like that.
1: Yes. Absolutely. But I think everything's fodder. I treat everything like it's fodder. I wouldn't have a career if I didn't.
0: Yeah, so then that's my next question. So wouldn't you, don't you ever just want to write, like, fiction, fiction for the sake of like just taking a break like just giving your heart a break basically
1: no i think i think that the the cliche quote that life is stranger than fiction has always enthralled me Mm -hmm. like i'd rather i'd rather experience and really like investigate real life before i enter you know a fictional world because even fiction that's always loosely based on some kind of reality so you're really not escaping your
0: own heart when you're writing that either yeah, it's interesting you said that uh, or you said you've done a number of interviews and people haven't talked to you about some of these topics. I was listening to a number of interviews you've done and it it's very hard because you do write so open and it it's very, I guess you have like open heart <laughs> surgery, you know what I mean? And so it's like yeah. the way you write. You know, if I saw you and you had, like, uh, a tank top or a low-cut shirt on or something, and it's like, I want to ask you about that scar above your heart, right? But it's impolite, and you, you see it, and you notice it, and you're like, I'm so curious. It's It feels like, um, what's the analogy? I guess it feels like when you're, like, on a date with a woman, and she begins to cry, and you don't know if you should hold her, or, like, hand her a tissue, or, like, how to fix anything. And, like... That's the problem sometimes is like right. you share a lot. And I'm trying to be like, you know, any journalist or anybody who's interviewing you, they're trying to be professional. But they're like, you know, they're asking about the book and your next project and stuff like this, but there's this scar on your heart and they they are dying to ask.
1: You know, I appreciate these questions because it is, you know, I was unknown. I haven't been totally unknown in the literary world in like five years now. So people Google me instantly, even when they meet me on the street if they really wanted to, and they learn almost immediately that when i was 20 years old my 19 year old cousin overdosed and died they learned almost immediately that i'm the author behind that viral poem about mental health so they piece together like and they do i'm sure there is a level of being uncomfortable about like i i know that this girl's been through stuff like how do i even approach the topic differently
0: yeah it's hard because it's like you know i don't know how how sensitive you're like you said you had you've had family members who have dealt with addiction and stuff like that so it's hard to talk about that it's like okay so then maybe i'll talk about like being like i made a joke about like be, womanhood whatever right like some of those themes kind of come through and i'm like oh no i can't i can't do that either <laughs> right and then it's like relationships i'm like no that's a weird gray area too you know what i mean so it's like you end mm-hmm. up so it's like all right so when's the next book coming out like that's the easier safer question because sharing isn't always caring
1: right right and then that's why i'm always trying to create spaces, like I said, to be cohesive and, and consistent. Like if I'm writing honestly, and you've read something and you want to ask me about it, they should be able to ask me about it. Like I put it out there, you know, my comment buttons, I don't turn off. So if people want to, I mean, I've, my DMs are something to see because they're just so, just a ton of people personally sharing their own heartache and, and connecting the mine. So I feel like You know, within reason, I do answer any questions. So this this interview in particular is honestly a breath of fresh air because I've been answering the same seven questions about this book since it came out.
0: Oh, that's a really sweet compliment. Uh, Unfortunately, during COVID, we can't do any hugs, though. But then, like, uh, when you get all these like dms and um, instagram messages and stuff and people are then like you know telling you their stories about like a family member who's dealing with drugs or a relationship that went wrong or these kind of stories these are tragic stories like, like i guess i don't know how to word this politely, but like doesn't it drain you or like do you you can always find like a way to support them like you know what i mean like you can still always get up because i think Right. The whole point of Clark Kent was that Superman didn't want to be Superman for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You know what I mean? He's like, "Yo, Lois, man, stop falling out of a building." You know what I mean? Like, I need a break.
1: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it is exhaustive. Yeah, it is. So it does drain me, especially you know, this like you you guessed it. Like the messages I get are not like, "Hi, Alicia, I had a great day today. I got a puppy." Like (laughs) a lot of the messages are like. Hi Alicia, my 12 year old son tried to commit suicide and my 16 year old daughter's addicted to heroin and my mom just died. And like, this is obviously multiple people telling me, it's not just one person, but um, it's always very dark. It's always, or it's always like, I think I'm depressed, but I'm afraid to tell my mom because she doesn't believe in depression. Um, I'm suicidal, I'm this, I'm that. So it is draining. And I used to burn out quite a bit because I used to try to answer people as quickly as I could. Now I, I take time out of each of my days where I'm like mentally prepared to open my DMs and spend an hour or so responding to people. And that's, that's helped me balance that because you are absolutely right. Especially being, you know, I'm empathetic and I'm almost like a sponge where their pain does become like my pain and my heart breaks for them. And, but I do respond to everyone.
0: Yeah, and that's why I use the analogy of like, you know, when you're on a date and then a woman starts to cry, you feel so helpless, right? Like you can't right. f- fix whatever it is making her cry, and yes, you can hug her or hand her a tissue, but and it is a small gesture and those things help obviously, but it's like at the end of the day you really haven't done much to like fix it. You know what I mean? It's like so you just end up standing there uh and you it, it can be frustrating sometimes. But it's interesting cuz you basically then By choosing to write the way you do, you've become a lighthouse for this community of people.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Right? You're attracting a lot of people who are going through darkness or struggling through something or a negative experience of some kind and you're trying to provide light for them.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the goal, right? Like, when I I first started writing and when I was struggling alone, like, in silence alone before I even started publicly writing, when I went through what I went through, I said, it all can't be for nothing. Like, I have to be able to take this pain and like bottle it in a way where it could help others. And that's, that's always been my intention. My intentions have always been very pure, like, you know, leave this world better than you found
0: it. And you said use of great phrase. You said, uh, I wasn't known when you first started, obviously no writer is known at that point. Do you feel right. no, known now? Do you feel like people like know you as the, the mismatch socks, crazy taxi lady, who writes Instagram poems?
1: <laughs> I think that in my, you know, and not, not on a massive scale at all do I feel like, I'm not like this like internationally recognizable person, but I think within my circle, within my universe, um, I think people could know me and if they don't, they could quickly find out a lot about me. So it's more about like how much of a fingerprint I have on the internet now and how easy it is to like look stuff up about me.
0: Yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, I think sometimes we confuse fame with being known. So where can people find you online to see uh, your Instagram work? Where can people find you online for where you can be the light for this uh, community that's going through things?
1: Well, officially, I'm on Instagram and Twitter, Cook. Um I have a website, theAliciaCook.com. It's all theAliciaCook, so it's very, <laughs> again, with my consistency. Mm-hmm. Um I have a YouTube that I just upload videos to every so often, uh, but mostly I'm on Instagram and Twitter. And I think Twitter is how you, you and I connect it.
0: Yeah. I did reach out to you that way. And we've, I've made sarcastic comments to you as well <laughs> on, t- mm-hmm. on Twitter. And I guess just to kind of then wrap up then, cause like just to some of the things we've talked about, it's weird, but it's like you in a sense, like you already have alluded to this a little bit when we talk about recovery, but like this pandemic, it mirrors a lot of the work that you do with a lot of your activism uh, that you do, right. with like uh, drug recovery, uh, drug addiction, those kind of topics. You're almost built or suited for this time. I guess that's the best way to put it, because you understand. I've heard ex-
1: I've heard that before. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because that's
0: yeah. when I was yeah. like looking more into your stuff. I'm like, oh, yeah, like. Like addiction is like a pandemic, right? Like it doesn't seem to have it, a, it doesn't seem to have an end, and you don't know when you're gonna ever gonna get, get out of it. And like, all right, tomorrow's gonna to be a new day, but then you slip up and it doesn't go this way, and then things like that. So then, knowing that, then do you have then any sense of encouragement or a bit of wisdom that you could share for people that are struggling uh, to kind of get through this.
1: Well, I I feel like the only reason I, I wrote about this I think in April, but it, I think it's just on the internet somewhere. The idea of, like, when this all happened, um, just because I seemed calm and I adjusted quickly didn't mean that I wasn't, like, aware of how catastrophic all this was. All that means is, like, if if anyone listening, like, if you realize, like, hey, I feel calm or, hey, I adjusted or, hey, I'm doing okay, it's not because you're not – it's not because you're naive to what's happening. It's because you're used to sitting in crisis. Like, that that's the only reason why I was okay was because I was used to dealing with, like, some traumatic shit. And, like, yeah, usually it's, like, family-based and more isolated. And this is way more universal because, you know, the whole world is impacted globally. Mm-hmm. But I was prepared to face another crisis because that's what I have done in the past, unfortunately. So to anyone going through this, and this is, like, their first catastrophic experience, I know that it's easier said than done and I know that even these words might not make a difference to you, but you know, one day at a time is a saying for a reason Mm -hmm. and you literally just have to be, you know, take it one day at a time and just really, truly believe that things will improve because they will, you know, things are going to improve slowly but surely. Um, And if anything, I feel like a lot of people realize what really matters now you know, it's not the superficial stuff. It is about human connection. It is about reaching out and helping your neighbor. So I'm hoping that in a way this, as terrible as all this was, I'm just hoping that maybe we could reset mm-hmm. humanity a little bit.
0: Yeah, to kind of sum up what you're saying, like firemen don't panic. We do. When we see a fire, like a building's on fire or a house is on fire, we panic and we just struggle and try mm-hmm. to put it out. And we're not used to that at all. But firemen who have been going through these different experiences and have um, even training, they kind of know what to expect, so they don't panic. When they see a fire, they're like, let's get to work. You know what I mean? They're aware yeah. that people's lives are at stake and somebody's going to lose their home and these things, but they put it all aside and like, let's get to work. Firemen don't panic.
1: No, they're conditioned to face that. And I think a lot of people were con- you know, conditioned on some level – to face something this catastrophic and if they weren't, and this is their first touch of that, like my heart breaks because I've had people tell me that like someone they know called nine one one cause they thought they were having a heart attack. When in reality they were having their first panic attack because hmm. they'd share symptoms and things like yeah. that. So, um, sometimes I even catch myself feeling guilty for feeling like some calmness right now, but it's not because I'm not freaked out. It's just because I'm used to being freaked out.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. People who are freaked out, whatever, probably should take a few minutes and maybe uh, like chill a little bit, take a deep breath, and then hopefully read some poetry. Right? That's one of the ways to kind of like get out of your head for a little bit. Yeah, I mean,
1: any yeah, just finding joy in the little things. If like, if you look forward every morning, I look forward to like my first sip of coffee. Like, I get so. Like it brings me actual joy. So it's about finding the joy in things like we talked about earlier. So you can't stare at your screen all day. You just can't do it. We can't watch the news all day. It's destroying our brains. Like we have to find ways to unplug in healthy ways. We have to make sure we're getting fresh air. We have to make sure you're doing things that you love, even when, you know, there are restrictions right now and it's hard to do everything you might want to do.
0: Hence the title, sorry, I haven't texted you back.
1: Yeah, I mean, how many times has anyone said that mm-hmm. the last year? Yeah, that's why the poem went viral. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, I haven't texted you back. I've been anxious and depressed. Like that's that's it.
0: But what you're suggesting is sorry, don't text people back and like not wear pants and have that and enjoy that first sip of coffee and just kind of chill for at least a few minutes.
1: Yeah, like having you time. Like no matter how that that you time looks, like having having that 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 quiet time where you're just with yourself because the the world is deafening it could get so loud that it, that it's deafening
0: all right that's a positive note we should end it there i've taken up quite a bit of your time but thank you so much for hanging out Oh, i
1: appreciate this yeah great call i, I love this conversation
0: oh that's really sweet so the the book is sorry i haven't texted you back it's out now, and you can pick it up. I highly recommend it. As I said, uh the side A is a number of poems, just about just under 100 poems, and then side B, or yeah, side B is then like the remixes of those poems. And it's really fascinating to see like the different themes, the different words, and things that you isolate uh, inside B from side A. It's uh it's a really engaging read. If somebody's looking for something new to read or something to do to kind of take a break, as you said, from all the doom scrolling and from all the news and everything like this, get your nose into this book. It is fantastic.
1: Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.
0: And that's it. I think we covered everything, right? We covered the uh, the socks. <laughs> uh, we covered the... I had to bring up the socks, didn't I? <laughs> there... Yes, yes, you did. Yeah. Uh, we covered the, the poetry and we covered like you have a lot of emotions and feelings. So I think we covered quite a bit.
1: Yeah, no, thanks. It was a great talk.
0: Mm -hmm. I messed up the Leonard Cohen line. My apologies to Leonard Cohen, who passed away in 2016. The proper line from his song Anthem is, There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Which totally makes sense from an ordained Buddhist monk. I am Sam Yunnan, and my guest was Alicia Cook. Her book is Sorry I Haven't Texted You Back. Highly recommended reading. Work through it slowly. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of My Summer Lair. This was less a conversation and more of a spiritual quest. Typically, people who listen to podcasts do it while cleaning or washing the dishes, maybe going out for a walk. I hope some of these spoken words added to your meditative work i meditate on pop culture and share my observations with the weekly and ever sarcastic newsletter my pal sammy go to substack.com and search my pal sammy and please sign up substack.com my pal sammy like please really truly sign up uh i am single and i believe having a newsletter would be a good way to impress women hello ladies but uh I need your help to look good. I know this will be a collective effort. Thank you so much for taking the time and listening to me in a Netflix world. Poetry, yo.